This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Hospitals generally across the U.S., they are parceling out beds for COVID patients, hunting for doctors and nurses as the Delta variant sweeps from coast to coast. Let's get an update, though, on COVID. Let's bring in Dr. Ty Gluckman. He's Director of Cardiovascular Analytics at Providence St. Joseph Health. You might recall we've talked to many of their team over the last year and a half. It is one of the largest healthcare systems in the U.S., massive, and it also has more than 50 hospitals in seven states, uh, lots of clinics, lots of caregivers, and they they were home to the first confirmed COVID case back in early 2020. Dr. Gluckman joining us on the phone in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Gluckman, nice to have you here on Bloomberg Radio. How are you? I'm great. It's a pleasure to be with you. I hope you're staying safe and doing well. We are. We are trying and trying to, you know, assess all of the headlines that are out there. Um, You know, you guys, what's interesting is have done a study recently, and I think this is something that we need to bring to everybody's attention about what's happening to some patients. And we're not talking about COVID patients. Why don't you get us up to speed on that? Yeah. So for many of us in the early surge in the spring of last year in 2020, we're observing that hospitalization rates, emergency department rates, people coming to the hospital were way down. And we've seen several reports that have come out in the United States and outside the United States suggesting a reduction in hospitalization rates and even heightened mortality death rates for people hospitalized. So we thought to better understand across our six of our states and 51 hospitals across a broad range of different conditions, what were the hospitalization rates looking like? What were the death rates looking like both in the spring surge of 2020 as well as the fall surge late this past fall? And what what did you find? So, you know, much to the disappointment, we saw similar things than had been observed previously. So in the spring surge, and this is compared to a period of time pre-pandemic, we saw that our unplanned hospitalizations, so these are people coming in for urgent conditions, and patients with COVID-19 were excluded from the study. So these are unrelated to COVID-19 hospitalizations. Unplanned hospitalizations declined very abruptly dropping by as much as 50, 5-0% from a period of early March through mid-May of 2020. And then there was a rise back up again beyond that initial surge, but not to the same rates that they otherwise would have been in terms of hospitalizations, falling again in a fall period from late October through late December of 2020 as well. And so we observed that during periods of surge of COVID-19, we saw that hospitalizations across our different states fell precipitously during both periods of time. In addition to this, we looked at mortality rates, adjusted in-hospital death rates for people who are hospitalized during those periods of time, and those rose during both periods. So while hospitalization rates were falling, there was an increase in the death rates for people during that initial spring and again in that fall surge as well very disheartening across the different states and across a broad range of conditions that we evaluated. And so the conclusion here is that essentially people aren't getting the care that they need 
in hospitals, either putting it off or ignoring things, whether out of concerns about being in hospitals or what have you, I'm assuming. And so as a result, that is leading to potentially complications in their health, and it sounds like also leading to death. Yeah, so there are a bunch of potential takeaways from Mm -hmm. this, but one of which is, is that there has been a spillover effect during the pandemic. And while we can't definitively determine why people stayed away or why people died at a higher rate, one of the biggest concerns that are the takeaway from this is that patients, out of concern of potentially contracting infection with SARS-CoV-2, getting COVID-19, that they stayed away from hospitals, from emergency departments, from clinics. And therefore, when they ultimately presented for these urgent uh, unplanned hospitalizations, they were that much sicker when they ultimately were hospitalized, and that accounts for their higher mortality rate. How are you doing an outreach to your community? Obviously, there are patients uh, or doctors who have patients um, that they know maybe are in compromised states or could be. How are you reaching out to your community to, to tackle this? It's a great question, and it was important during the spring surge. It's important the fall surge, but I can tell you we weren't anticipating when we initially designed the study that we'd be sitting in a surge today going on across the United States. And so I think it's really important to unambiguously, emphatically let our patients know that our clinics, our emergency departments, our hospitals are safe places to receive care. And so in patients who are concerned about their health, they should not hesitate to contact emergency medical services, call 911, come to their clinics, reach out to their clinicians, come to the emergency department, because the consequences of delaying their care can be quite significant. I want to get back to Dr. Ty Gluckman. He's director of the Center for Cardiovascular Analytics at Providence St. Joseph Health with us on the phone from Portland, Oregon. You know, what's interesting, Dr. Gluckman, this is something that we have talked about with many members of the medical community throughout the pandemic. There was that concern, and understandably, as hospitals were overwhelmed, that they had to prioritize COVID patients. How are hospitals managing both COVID patients and regular routine medical treatments at this point, are you finding where there are areas of surge that you can't manage both or have hospitals figured out a way to do both at the same time? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think early on we were struggling, certainly during the initial spring surge in 2020. I will say across all of our hospitals, while we've seen in our communities rising case counts, I think we're doing a great job of balancing both and making sure that patients feel safe if they're dealing and struggling with COVID-19 to receive the appropriate care they need if they need it in our emergency departments or in our hospitals. But similarly, for those individuals that are not dealing with COVID-19 but are dealing with critical illness, urgent medical conditions, they should feel very comfortable in seeking out care. We've found ways to be able to provide that care in the outpatient setting and certainly in our hospitals and emergency departments as well. Yeah, it does feel like, you know, we said, man, I said so many times we didn't have the playbook, right? None of us had the playbook pre-pandemic, despite warnings that have been out there for years that something like this would ultimately come. Um, How has that playbook filled up in your view that we are in a better position, even with these new surges and what other new surges may come as a result of uh, future variants? How is that playbook better equipped at this point? Yeah, I believe that early on we were struggling even in things like having adequate amounts of PPE, making sure that we had ventilators for those patients 
who had lung-related conditions that warranted it. I think today now we're just trying to make sure that we are prioritizing care for those people who need it most in our emergency departments and in our hospitals. Uh, I want to reaffirm that you know, our hospitals and emergency departments are safe places to receive care, and we have the ability to care for people who need uh, care in those different specific settings. Um, I think also we figured out a way to be able to have our clinical teams uh, and the range of different clinicians and care team members involved, whether it's in the outpatient setting, leveraging where appropriate virtual care telehealth strategies in the hospital, making sure that we're adequately resourced to be able to attend to all the needs patients have. So I feel like we're at a very good place to be able to deliver the care that's needed, whether it's related to COVID-19 or it's an unplanned need to come to the hospital for something completely unrelated to COVID-19. I am also curious, you know, as you talk about this study that you did uh, and people who are maybe putting off, you know, coming into hospitals for different reasons, how much of kind of routine treatment is still down from where it was at pre-pandemic levels? So I I think our capacity to be able to accommodate a lot of basic preventive care and then usual chronic medical care is back up to where we need it to be. I think one of the challenges that exists is how do we reassure patients who are dealing with an acute unexpected illness or those that are continuing to seek treatment for chronic longstanding medical conditions that they need to connect with their care teams, with their clinicians, whether in the outpatient setting or elsewhere, to make sure they're they're getting the care that they need. Uh, For quite a while, patients at a much greater rate than we would otherwise want were putting off or potentially foregoing care, delaying care. Um, I think it's long past due that we need to make sure that patients with chronic illnesses receive all of the ongoing care that they need. And again, be prepared in the clinic setting to be responsive to people who have acute exacerbations of longstanding medical conditions or something altogether new. Right. And for those that need to go to the emergency department, understanding it's a safe place, they should not hesitate to call 911, seek EMS services when getting to the emergency department. So capacity, you said, is back to where it needs to be. What about utilization, though? That's what I'm curious about, where patients are actually tapping hospitals. How much down is that from pre-pandemic levels? We still, across the United States, and I would say in our health system, are seeing lower rates of using, utilizing our emergency departments that we would otherwise like. Um, So we know that there is a capacity that exceeds what is being utilized, at least comparing that to pre-pandemic levels going back prior to March of 2020. And so we know that there are more people out there who need our services that are actually utilizing it unrelated to COVID-19. And so uh, it's opportunities like this to reaffirm to patients that they should feel very comfortable seeking the care that they need. That's true in our clinics. It does vary across different conditions, but regardless of the condition, regardless of the chronicity or acuity of their condition, we have the capacity and the ability to be able to help take care of you. So because we have you here, I've got to ask you, what are you seeing in terms of COVID cases right now? So we're seeing upticks. I'm out in Portland, Oregon, and we're Mm -hmm. seeing an uptick uh, overall compared to where we have been. Uh, I think it's reflective of several parts of the country Um, in our communities. um, And it is disconcerting. Um, And I I think for many of us, we thought we would be well behind this, whether we're in the clinical community or not. Um, It's very disheartening to see the rising cases and rising hospitalization rates. And while it's a rate that is 
uh, and an ability to be able to tackle it that's much better equipped than we were uh, a year ago and earlier, um, I would say it still is uh, challenging for those of us who thought we'd be in a much better place than we are today. Is it typically younger? Is it people who are unvaccinated, which is certainly some of the stories that we've done a lot here at Bloomberg. Is that the trends that you're seeing? We're continuing to see that individuals who are who have not been vaccinated disproportionately represent individuals who are coming down with COVID-19 and certainly requiring hospitalizations as well. Um, and I think this is, again, a reaffirmation of the importance of vaccination as the single most important individual tactic to help prevent severe illness and illness in general. Are you seeing, as a result, an uptick in vaccinations um, as a result of the rise in Delta cases once again? So we've been fortunate in Oregon to at least exceed what the national average has been in terms of vaccination. That being said, there's always room for improvement. And so we continue to reinforce pretty emphatically the importance of getting vaccinated uh, for all individuals who are eligible. Uh, It is a key tactic to be able to help uh, mitigate the risk of consequences. And for those of us who have been at this for in excess of 15 months, it is extraordinarily disheartening to see individuals with severe illness or ultimately succumbing to something that is ultimately preventable. And I have to say, within my sphere of friends and and family and colleagues, I mean, I do know people who have had some really difficult illnesses and have gotten incredible care throughout the pandemic um, and just and didn't put things off and couldn't. Uh, It was really kind of a life and death issue. Having said that, you know, remind our audience that something that can be in the early stages or something that is manageable, how quickly it can become um, a much more difficult health situation and really quickly. I mean, not you speaking quickly, but how the situation can evolve very quickly. Absolutely. And so people can go from a relatively stable state to one being very decompensated very quickly. And our range of therapeutic options, therapies that we have available, have significantly improved compared to where we were more than a year ago. So for those individuals that uh, have been infected with SARS-CoV-2, who have developed COVID-19, seeking medical attention as soon as possible is of key importance because our range of therapies uh, are much greater than what we had more than a year ago. I think the second thing is just to reaffirm that for all individuals who are eligible, vaccination uh, is a key importance. And I would say to all of my clinical colleagues across the United States and elsewhere, um, I spend each day when I'm in clinic asking each patient about whether or not they've been vaccinated for those that are eligible and really at least under getting a better understanding of why people may be resistant. I think for those of us that are in the clinical community, we are often amongst the most trusted individuals when working with our patients and loved ones, and they are more likely to listen to us perhaps than others. And so we play a key role in helping to help patients and their loved ones understand why if there are misgivings or uncertainty about getting vaccinated, how some of the concerns can be addressed through just discussion, talk, and making sure they understand where we're coming from, we understand where they're coming from, and why we're advocating strongly for vaccination. So just as we wrap up, I I wonder, Dr. Gluckman, if you have any confidence in terms of the visibility of where we are six months from now or 12 months from now when it comes to the pandemic and kind of getting back to quote unquote normal? Although I don't think it's, it's going to be a new normal, right? Because we've lived through so much. 
Yeah, I think, unfortunately, this is going to be with us for a while. And my hope is that the case rates continue to fall. But uh, getting vaccinated to mitigate the risk of new variants developing is going to be of key importance. The other thing I would say is a key takeaway is for those of us that work within health systems, you know, never in my lifetime would I ever have expected nor have ever experienced anything like this. And so how do we prevent the next pandemic, the next major medical problem that does occur? How do we make sure we're well prepared, that we as a healthcare system communicate very clearly to at-risk individuals, to patients, what is important so we don't see the direct consequences as a result of the pandemic and infection, but also as our study sought to evaluate the indirect consequences, the secondary or carryover effects as a result of fear, uncertainty, making sure that health systems, hospitals, emergency departments, clinics are safe places and that we're well prepared to take care of patients regardless. Have you guys at Providence, St. Joseph Health, have you guys taken specific steps so that you're ready next time around? We continue, much like we're in the surge today, to go through innumerable steps to make sure we're well prepared with multiple redundancies. Mm. And I really want to credit our leadership in our organization who has done a superbly stellar job of making sure that we are well prepared for additional waves should they occur, as well as the next pandemic. Uh, We spend a lot of time preparing for this for other types of disasters, whether they be natural, whether they be infectious. Um, It doesn't take anything away from the fact that we continue as a healthcare system to struggle with the the toll of just this being such a long-lasting, seeming like it has never ended uh, event. But nonetheless, we will get through this Uh, And importantly, we want to make sure that all of our patients stay safe as much as possible as we continue to make the therapies available, as we continue to address non-COVID-19 related illness, along with uh, that related to the infection as well. Well, listen, thank you so much for all this time today. We really covered a lot of ground, and I really appreciate it and gave uh, our listeners and viewers on YouTube a lot to think about. Dr. Ty Gluckman, thank you, and be well and stay safe. He's director of the Center for Cardiovascular Analytics at Providence St. Joseph Health. It's a massive system. He joined us on the phone from Portland, Oregon talking about those who are not necessarily getting the care they need and also giving us uh, an update on the COVID cases that they are specifically seeing. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. All right, there's a lot of news on the political front today. It's not just about the resignation of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, which we have been covering here at Bloomberg. There's also, of course, news out of the nation's capital, the Senate passing that more than half a trillion dollar infrastructure plan. It would represent, as I said, a massive burst of spending, the largest that we've seen on a federal level in decades. And it would be a pretty big big victory for President Biden and his economic agenda. So let's start with that infrastructure passage. Uh, Bloomberg News congressional tax reporter Laura Davis. Davison is up on Capitol Hill in D.C. Uh, Laura, good to have you here. It was a major step forward, but it ain't done yet, right? Correct. It, uh, the, the, the bill has the Senate. The infrastructure bill has passed, but they've already started work on the budget resolution. This is a three point five trillion dollar bill uh, that will uh, kind of complete the rest of uh, Joe Biden's agenda. So they did sort of the roads and bridges portion earlier today, and now they're beginning. Uh, the second portion, which is looking at kind of that soft infrastructure, so investments into health care, into um, education, into child care, um, and as well as a whole bunch of uh, climate change preventing uh, 
different mechanisms as well. Yeah, it's massive in terms of spending. Hey, you know, I wanted to ask you, though, before we got into a little bit more of the particulars about what's next in terms of this process for uh, infrastructure spending is, what's everyone talking about up on Capitol Hill? Is it about infrastructure or is it about the resignation of Governor Cuomo? You know, today has really been um, a lot, a lot of, a, of of infrastructure. You know, Cuomo certainly this, this was uh, news and caught everyone by a little bit of surprises. But though, really, every major Democrat in the country had already called for his resignation. So this was a, more of a um, you know kind of seeing that happen and now moving on. I think Democrats in particular are uh, you know looking to focus on their policy wins and maybe not so much on the the scandals in the party. Well, and it's interesting though, but you know this better than most that when there's somebody who is very well known within the political party, uh, a face of the political party in many ways are very outspoken. And when you think about, you know, prominent Democrats, certainly Andrew Cuomo, uh, because of his family legacy, because of him, he and his own, you know, involvement uh, in government on a federal level, and then of course, in the New York State uh, level, you know, you do wonder about what are the implications for the party or for a current administration? Are there any connections that can be made that makes, you know, some Democrats a little bit nervous or not necessarily? You know, it's, it's not a huge issue, but you really do see, um, you know, kind of this issue has something that has kind of dogged Democrats of how do they address, um, you know, kind of how women are treated and then the whole Me Too movement, if we saw um um, Al Franken, senator mm-hmm. from uh, Minnesota, get pushed out by members of his own party several years ago. Um, and I think the the party maybe felt, uh, some people felt like they maybe moved a little too quickly and didn't fully examine the situation there. Um, but with, with Cuomo, it was like a little bit more clear the path forward and that uh, that really that the, once that report came out that, that he really didn't have anyone backing him and that was a clear decision for Democrats to make. Because New York, of course, a big and important state, no doubt about it, for uh, the Democrats going forward. This new governor coming in, uh, the deputy governor, Governor, uh, how does that change in terms of collaborations uh, working together on a federal and state level? Well, you know, Cuomo had really been sort of a, a leader, both policy-wise, you know, on COVID response. With kind of the, the uh, new governor coming in, um, she's really going to be more holding down the fort than sort of being a leader. She's just trying to kind of keep the, the ship on track. Um, so New York may find its influence um, over policy debates a little bit diminished in the coming years. This is, you know, of course, New York um, is, is still a huge state, lots of representatives from New York. Uh, but, you know, we also saw in the last census that they lost uh, they lost one representative. So this yeah. is, uh, you know, could kind of, in hindsight, prove to be sort of a pivotal point for New York or its influence um, in the Democratic in the Democratic Party and in Washington. Well, it's certainly pivotal in that uh, Kathy Hochul, of course, the lieutenant governor, to become the first female governor for the state of New York and that uh, transition happening in the next couple of weeks. All right, let's go back to infrastructure. I know that's been like on your mind, on all of our minds so much. So tell us about what's next here in this process. So the Senate passed the bill, and they now kick it over to the House, where the House will have to consider this. Um, we don't have a set timeline for when that's going to happen. Uh, there's kind of warring factions in the House right now, with moderates saying they want to vote on it as soon as possible, progressives saying they want to um, see that this other bill play out, this $3.5 trillion bill move before they want to vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. It's kind of a mess, frankly. Uh, you know, This is something that Pelosi is going to have to sort out, and how to keep all the various uh, tents within the party happy um, and, and keeping people people uh, marching the, the beat of the same drum, you know, she only can afford to lose three votes. She basically has to keep all of her members together. Uh, she's done a pretty jo- a good job successfully of, of doing that so far, uh, but she's got a real big test coming up here this fall. What about Republican support? 
uh, Republican support for the infrastructure bill. It, this is, uh, you know, it, it, it's seen as though you will get some Republicans. You know, in the House, mm. you got, uh, or sorry, in the Senate, there were 19 Republicans who joined with all 50 Democrats. Uh, not expecting to see quite as much of, uh, you know, kind of percentage-wise in the House. Um, the House is just a little bit more conservative, um, and and members who uh, necessarily don't get points back at home from doing bipartisan things. However, um, there's a lot of money that goes to a lot of states, including a lot of Republican states. You could see um, some lawmakers come over and and vote for that. That's what's always interesting, Laura. I mean, you follow this because this is a massive spending that all states will participate in this. And that means for the most part, right, everybody has something to take back home to their constituents. Yes, this is really, um, you know, kind of why infrastructure has been seen as an area of bipartisan cooperation for a long, long time, because there's something in it for everybody. Every state, every district has roads, has bridges, um, you know, relies on different transportation systems, any energy transmission, uh, broadband, everyone really um, gets a lot of benefit here. So uh, that that's why it's sort of been, uh, you know, kind of frustrating to some lawmakers of saying, you know, why can't we get an agreement to spend money on improved the uh, the facilities in our districts, uh, know finally today they were able to do it. Well, and Nancy Pelosi, um, Speaker of the House, she has been very firm about saying that she wants to make sure she doesn't want to vote on the bipartisan package until the Senate has passed the broader economic plan. Is there any wiggle room or do you feel what you're hearing from and the reporting that you're doing that she's not going to change her tune on that? And that means going she for is- everything, right, rather than kind of parsing it, you know, part one versus the second portion. Yeah, the timing here is going to be really, really difficult to manage and to keep everybody in line. You know, this is really the issue vexing Pelosi this week of, you know, how quickly, how far apart can the bills be voted on? If, you know, one uh, is coming close to being ready, can she go ahead and move uh, on the infrastructure bill first? Can she go ahead and clear that? This is, uh, you know, we're going to have to see how this plays out. We really don't know yet. Uh, just she's got a lot of people asking a lot of different things and threatening to withhold their support, which she needs if they don't get their way on the process. And let's remind everybody, this package, this infrastructure package, um, includes about $110 billion in new spending for roads and bridges, $73 billion for power grid upgrades, $66 billion for rail and Amtrak, $65 billion for broadband expansion, also provides $55 billion for clean water, and $39 billion for transit. So, you know, as, as you and the team in their reporting, every state would feel the effects in some way. So President Biden is going to make... We're expecting to make some comments uh, any moment now. And I know you'll be listening. We will be as well. What's his mission at this point, especially when it comes to the public at large? Do they care? Can they be influential? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, the president will make the case that, look, this is, you know, a bill that will touch everybody in their lives. It will make, uh, you know, transportation safer. It will make transportation cleaner. You know, it will give people access to things like broadband uh, where there's still, you know, large swaths of the country that don't have um, access to uh, low cost, uh, high speed Internet. Um and he's also going to make the case of, look, are you, I, when I was running, when you voted for me, I said I was going to, you know, work with the Senate, cut deals, cut bipartisan deals to get stuff done. Um, and he really can has a, you know, a pretty good example to, to hold up here and say, look, uh, you know, they said this wasn't possible. They, you know, said that the, the Senate's broken. And we've proved today, uh, at least for a brief moment, that the Senate can work together uh, to come up with, with these big bipartisan deals. Hey, one other thing I just wanted to bring up. How do we pay for all of this? That's the other side of the equation. Yes. Well, so that is really the the, the question here, you know, about 
half of it uh, it adds to the deficit. That's what the Congressional Budget Office says. But they really have a whole smattering. They really searched the couch cushions in Washington to find the money. They did some things like some new cryptocurrency reporting requirements. They're using some of the COVID relief funds that never got spent. They're repurposing those to cover these costs, um, as well as um, doing a, a fee on some uh, um, some polluting companies. You know, kind of little odds and ends here uh, to come up with the uh, with the a couple hundred billion dollars to pay for it. And let's not forget that there's a major push by a group of U.S. lawmakers to expand the federal deduction for state and local taxes, right? And that's something just quickly that's also being worked on. Yes, that's in the reconciliation bill. That's something that uh, several Democrats in the House have said they won't vote on. Uh, the state and local tax deduction is a huge deal, particularly for New York, particularly for Democrats. Um, and I think it's, there's a very strong chance that we'll see some form of that tax uh, deduction being expanded in any bill that passes later this year. Amen, sister. I live here in the New York area. <laughs> we certainly have all felt it. Hey, Laura, thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate that and gave us a, a great setup for when uh, the president makes some comments on that infrastructure uh, plan. All right. That, of course, was Laura Davidson. She is our Bloomberg News congressional tax reporter joining us up on Capitol Hill. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So we talked about this Business Week story yesterday on air. It's about how restaurants and restaurant owners are continuing to pivot in our pandemic and post-pandemic world. And that means often becoming creative, innovative, changing menus, and sometimes playing bouncer. This story on the Bloomberg and at BloombergBusinessWeek.com. Here with more on what's going on. Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the Access Line in Massachusetts, along with Bloomberg News investigative reporter Polly Mosens, who wrote this story along with our Pursuits Food editor Kate Crater. Polly on the phone in New York City. Joel, man, those restaurants, I know they're happy that the doors are open, but man, it's not easy. Open for some, um, <laughs> and that's where the drama uh, comes in. And and just like sort of at the beginning of the pandemic when the the restaurants were really like a front lines of sorts, um, uh, they're there again. And that's um, sort of what Polly and Kate Crater pointed out and uh, got to talk to a lot of people who are dealing with this. So Polly, what did you hear? Well, one of the biggest things that we heard was just surprise. Restaurants feel not entirely prepared to deal with this, but they're also willing to roll with the punches. They were certainly not resistant to the idea. They just are going to need a little bit of time to acclimate because not only are they going to have to check all of their diners, they're also going to have to check all of their staff because the policy uh, applies to their employees as well as to the diners. Well, it's this is what's crazy. I mean, and we're talking about this increasingly, right? Because in order for people to maybe go to restaurants, they want to feel safe, especially if they're inside. And so as a result, these owners are going are really having to police who's in there. I mean, it's 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 like checking your IDs when you were 17 or 18. Uh, this is what they're doing, Polly. Yeah, absolutely. This is like the ultimate ID check, right? You'll have to show your ID and then you'll have to show your vaccine card. And just like they do with the IDs, they're going to have to be on the lookout for fakes when it comes to the vaccine cards. So so talk to us about the Excelsior Pass and sort of like what the people you talk to, how do they, how do they feel about um, it in practice? So the good thing about the Excelsior Pass is that it is a pretty thorough app. However, in practice, it is possible to pass a phone in between two diners. You know, two folks that might be going out to dinner together, they, in one case, we actually heard that uh, the hostess 
and the owner of the restaurant, she caught them passing the app between them. So while the app is certainly thorough, it certainly seems to work well, you do run the risk of people just passing the phone between the two of them in order to circumvent that vaccination mandate. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty wild that that's going on. And I mean, it's even trickier, as you and Kate report in the story, um, Polly, is that you talk about for someone, it might be an Asian restaurant. I mean, it's not just, you know, policing when it comes to vaccine, but there's also other factors at play that makes it even more difficult for restaurant owners. Absolutely. It is just one more hurdle that they are going to have to deal with. And they've had 18 months of hurdles. Mm. And some restaurants, they're going to be able to afford to offload this responsibility to security guards. But that's not something that's feasible for all restaurants. And so what is um, the, the general sort of like mood that you get from talking to everybody that you got to talk with? And look, like, it feels like forever, like these 18 months. And it's been this roller coaster ride where suddenly everything had to be uh, uh, to go, and then you know in room dining started back, um, and but then they took away the to go cocktails. Like, what's the just what's the the mood for when you talk to um, the, the the folks who are really in charge of these businesses? Yeah, the mood is definitely very. There's some folks who say, you know, we'll deal with it and we're going to be okay, and then there's some folks who just anticipate more problems down the road. And I think overall the mood is just people getting used to constant change. There are no more surprises, you know. Everything is now a surprise in the dining industry. So a lot of the restaurateurs who we talked to, they have gotten really used to rolling with the punches, even if they're not thrilled with all the punches. I love there's a quote from, is it Scott Gerber that's in this story? And it says, we've dealt with intoxicated people, irrational people. Uh, and uh, he says, our people are skilled at de-escalating problems. I mean, yes, that's so true. But it, it does feel like this takes it, you know, to a whole other level. Absolutely. I think that this definitely does take it to a whole different level. And, you know, we have seen, unfortunately, in the past, people do get very violent and very upset with folks who are working the door. That's something that service workers at grocery stores and that retailers dealt with a lot in the early days of the pandemic. You know, in two instances, security guards were unfortunately even killed over mask mandates that they were attempting to enforce. Well, you know, that was another group of people that you, you, you know, we, we mentioned that already a little bit, but I, I do want to bring it back to the security guards who are, you know, ultimately being contracted to sort of fight these fights as, as subcontractors, really. And, and do we see that demand for that, that job description continuing to go up in the month ahead? Oh, absolutely. We talked to two different security guard company owners, and both of them did anticipate that there would be a rise in business as a result of this new mandate. Uh, and, you know, one of the owners was, was optimistic. He was hopeful that people would comply and that New Yorkers would understand. And then the, the other one was a little apprehensive. He, he was nervous that his guards would be dealing with erratic people, especially tourists who are not from New York and perhaps aren't familiar with the policy to begin with, who might get very upset. You know, what's interesting, too, is you talk about, and I know we've touched upon this a little bit, but I do think about how restaurants are doing additional training, right? We did it after the Me Too movement. And as, you know, certainly after George Floyd, companies adapting in general to what's happening in uh, our world. And that's the same thing for restaurant owners, right? That, 
you know, Polly, we have to see them maybe instituting new training for their workers so that they know how to handle these situations. They've got the tools to figure it out. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure they'll also be looking to law enforcement in the most extreme of situations. And law enforcement has had to do their own set of training as, as they navigate this new and unusual world that we're living in. So, so Polly, um, you know, I'll just bring it back to that Excelsior app and sort of like the technological solutions and then, you know, the easy workarounds that, that people inevitably come up with. Um, and, and, and with Delta being what um, um, it, you know, just continues to be a, a bigger concern with people. Do, are people thinking that in the restaurant groups in particular, are people craving to be in restaurants right now still or... Are they? Is it more of like a uh, taking a backseat um, to where we were, kind of at the beginning of of the pandemic? You know, I think that people are still craving it. I definitely think that there will still be a market for it because it's important to understand that in New York City, we actually have a phenomenally high vaccination rate. New York is doing really well in vaccination. And I think that the mayor's office and restaurateurs are hopeful that this will take it to the next level of vaccination rate. So I definitely think that there is still a big market and a big desire to be out and about. And, you know, this policy uh, may encourage some people who have been on the fence about vaccination to ultimately get vaccinated. Well, and, you know, I also do wonder, we've talked about this a lot, Polly, about, you know, private sector, public sector working together. And and (laughs) it does feel like restaurants have to be a little bit on pins and needles as new mandates come down from officials about how to do things. And then they've got, they're left kind of figuring it all out. Uh, And I do wonder if there'll be more collaboration to kind of help restaurants through this, especially when it's stricter policy. Absolutely. I think that's the biggest thing that we heard both from the security guard companies and from the restaurateurs is just, we need more time. We need to figure out how this is going to work. You know, they they do need to, to get acclimated to this new policy. And I think that there's issues that they haven't even thought of yet. That they will deal with when the time comes, when people are ultimately showing up at their doors that have to prove that they're vaccinated. Polly, how many restaurants did you go to in the course of reporting this story? And... Where do you most want to go that you didn't get to go to? <laughs> uh, Kate and I, uh, we, we only got to visit a, a few restaurants in the course of reporting the story that we had talked to a whole bunch. Personally, I am really looking forward to being able to go out to Ed's Lobster. That is one of my favorite places in the city. It is a great place, and I will certainly be dining there when it's all vaccinated inside. Well, I have to say, it does feel good to walk around New York. I've actually ate eaten out in a couple of restaurants um, since they've opened up and it felt so good to see the activity back. And I bet, you know, Polly, if you tried to do this six months ago or something, it was just such a different scene. That's for sure. It definitely feels like there's life back in restaurants. And I think that for a lot of people who live in New York City and who love dining, this mandate will not deter them. They will they will find a way to go out to eat. And, you know, if they're really hesitant about the vaccine, they do always have the option of eating outdoors. That does remain an option, even with this new policy. Not been easy, Joel. Oh, I've been the guy outside. I've got a <laughs> six-year-old. So anytime I have to go outside, I, I go outside. Or anytime we're going to a restaurant, I go outside because I've got a 
kid that is, you know, masked up. He's doing a great job, but I haven't really wanted to drag him inside. Um, and now, you know, I don't even think he could since, you know, he doesn't yeah. have a vaccine card to show. That's right. That's right. All right. Listen, good uh, story and certainly great to get an update on, on what's been really one of the most troubled sectors and hard hit sectors because of the pandemic. Polly uh, Masen, she is an investigative reporter here at Bloomberg News on the phone in New York. And of course, our thanks to Jill Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, joining us also on the remote access. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I don't wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 10 and a half minutes left in today's trading session, getting ready to wrap up that Tuesday trade. And as Charlie mentioned, we did see a record on the S&P 500. We'll see if we'll ultimately close there. Uh, you've got the Dow, really the outperformer on a percentage basis, up about 0.4%. The NASDAQ, though, going in the other direction. All right, let's get to our next guest. He is Ryan Jacob. He's Chairman, Chief Investment Officer, Portfolio Manager at Jacob Asset Management. The Jacob Internet Fund, as we've mentioned before, continuing to beat just about all of its peers over the past five years. It's in the 90th percentile, according to data here at Bloomberg, returning 37% on average annually. The Jacob Discovery Fund and the Jacob Small Cap Growth, also top performers over the past five years. And Ryan with us uh, on the phone from LA. Ryan, good to have you here. How are you? It seems like uh, great it's... Great to be back. Yeah, it's Thanks. good to... Uh, this year's turning out to be a pretty decent one for you guys. It has been. Um, you know, we had a very strong first quarter. The second quarter was a bit more challenging. But, but overall, um, you know, a lot of our companies have been performing and uh, it's uh, reflected in the stock prices. Well, how are you adjusting any of your portfolio holdings? I'm looking at some of your top holdings in your internet fund, uh, Voyager Digital, Digital Turbine, Twitter, Twilio. Now, these are, I think, as of uh, the end of May. So maybe there's some, some shift. Square, Zillow, any changes that you've been actively making? Uh, we've been making some changes. I, I, we still believe the biggest challenge this year is, especially in the technology space, is which companies can kind of build off of uh, what was kind of a COVID bump last year and can continue to grow um, this year and it can maybe accelerate their growth off of what was a high base. There are a lot of companies that really had a sugar high uh, from, from you know work at home, lockdowns, et cetera. And, and have tailed off a bit. I think that distinction is going to be the biggest challenge this year. Well, you know, and that's interesting, right? Because I think we obviously did see a lot of companies that benefited, uh, as uncomfortable as that may have been to talk about it. Nonetheless, there were definitely some pandemic plays. Which are the ones that you think are longer lasting? Well, for us, Digital Turbine, which reported last night, mm-hmm. um, is definitely uh, one of those. Uh, the stock's actually off a little bit today, surprising to us. Um, you know, been accelerating their growth. It's a triple-digit grower, even off of last year's results. Uh, three recent acquisitions uh, should be very additive to revenue and margins uh, going forward and cash flow. Uh, and, uh, you know, they benefited. They, they provide software for mostly Android devices for app installs. They saw a big bump last year, but because of their international distribution, uh, that bump last year is accelerating into this year. And, uh, You know, the revenue growth has been astounding, and uh, there's still a lot of room for margin improvement. All right. So have you allocated new money, maintained the position? 
Yeah, it, it's still, you know, the, the positions you mentioned are still uh, mm-hmm. our top group. Uh, you know, Zillow, uh, the stock has been terrible over yeah. the last quarter, but the results uh, uh, last week were, were tremendous. And, you know, the iBuying, the Zillow Homes, they've been advertising it more, expanding it, and uh, it's resonating among consumers. Uh, you know, it, it's an astounding statistic that, you know, two-thirds of all home purchases at some point go through Zillow. And uh, so it's an extremely valuable platform, and uh, you know, they, they continue to execute very well. So why is the stock down? It's down about 23% so far this year, well off the high that we saw back in February, where it was, what, I think uh, around 200 or so, now changing, now trading at just below 100. Why, what's the disconnect, especially when you talk I about think, the Yeah, I think news. a few yeah. reasons. Uh, obviously, um, you know, last year we had a huge boom in real estate, mm-hmm. and that's trans- you know, that's also continued into this year. And there's concerns that, that, that that can't continue at that pace. We've also seen, seen interest rates creep back up, and I think there's a lingering concern there that if rates uh, go, continue to rise, that could affect affordability. But I think there's a disconnect. I mean, the results have been outstanding. And again, um, even though the real estate market may cool some, uh, I, I, you know, in terms of the, the stock performance, it's been a bit puzzling it, it would be this week, uh, given their... Uh, continued dominance of, of the market. There's another name that you like, certainly not one that we talk about a lot, but it's uh, tickers OPRX, Optimizer RX. This is uh, a way for individuals, consumers to save money, right, on branded prescription. Tell us a little bit about this one. Well, think of it, think of it almost like the good RX uh, for uh, doctors and, and surgeons, where um, what's happening is they offer uh, e-couponing and other sorts of uh, rebates uh, for uh, patients uh, for different prescriptions, you know, as they're prescribed. And, and th- these are advertisements that are delivered through the electronic health record systems, you know, directly to the doctor when they're at the point of, uh, point of prescribing. And they also, um, it, it's, it's a way for drug companies to get their brands in front of a very important audience. And uh, this was a business that was taking off prior to COVID, once all the pharmaceutical reps could no longer go out in the field, no more industry conferences, a huge push towards digital uh, advertising uh, for these uh, drug brands. And uh, so they saw a huge adoption last year. And I think that as the drug companies have seen the uh, effectiveness and the returns they were getting from this spending, uh, they, they became believers. And we're seeing an acceleration of the number of brands, number of enterprise deals, you know, across these you know, global pharmaceutical companies, I think we're in the early stages of this, and Optimize is, is in a lead position here to deliver this kind of messaging. Hey, another name that you like, because I know uh, our audience likes here, I think you mentioned it, Voyager D- Digital. Uh, this is up 324%. This is a cryptocurrency brokerage service. Uh, We've been talking about crypto in regards to infrastructure and getting some, you know, regulatory rules on the books here. What is it about Voyager Digital that you in particular like? It's about a $2.3 billion market cap. Yeah, Voyager we found uh, a little less than a year ago, um, a very tiny, uh, you know, emerging kind of crypto broker that was uh, founded by a former senior executive from E-Trade, a former CTO of Uber. We were very, very impressed with the team they put together and uh, their, their strategy and the execution has been flawless. Obviously, the, the market for, for cryptocurrencies has been booming and they've just been growing well ahead of our expectations. And even with the cool down in prices, 
um, you know, they're, they're still doing exceptionally well, and uh, they're really carving out a niche. They're not Coinbase. You know, Coinbase is still, I believe they report tonight, and, and obviously one of the largest global players. But Voyager, for a small upstart, ha- has done a tremendous job and, uh, you know, ha- have really done a lot of innovative things and have a lot of expansion plans that, that are very promising. What I'm wondering too, Ryan, you know, for our audience, we talk a lot about crypto, obviously. Um, what would be your advice to them when they look at it? Because it's still a developing market. There's a lot of cryptocurrencies are out there. And I think many would say that the dust still has to settle in terms of how this plays out. We're waiting to see what kind of regulatory oversight ultimately we'll have. Just got about 30 seconds here. How, what's your advice to investors, especially since you are picking names in this space? I'll try to make it quick. We definitely see echoes of kind of the emergence of the Internet. 20, 25 years prior. People understand that it's probably here to stay at this point. Uh, the, the technology makes too much sense. There's too much utility for it. But they're really trying to wrap their heads around, you know, how to value these companies, you know, how they're going to be implemented. And, and this adoption is going to take some time, and it's going to be very challenging to try to value. So the opportunity is there, but you do have to be careful. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Listen, Ryan, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Ryan Jacob, he's Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager at Jacob Asset Management on the phone from Los Angeles. All right, folks, it is time for our Bloomberg TV team to join us for Beyond the Bell. It's live on Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg TV, and YouTube. Counting you. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.